our joy and our strength is not based on circumstance. And in following the Lord Jesus on this earth, there is always joy even in the midst of sorrow. And there is peace in the midst of pain and in the storm. And if you don't know that and don't understand that in the life that you're living, then I invite you just to listen this morning and let God's Word declare some things to you. We're going to move through Isaiah 49, verses 1-6. through I'll read it to you first and then talk about a few things leading back into it. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He has concealed me. He has also made me a select or sharp arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord. And my reward with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says... It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Father, we read this servant song in in the book of the prophet Isaiah and we marvel at what is being said here. And we wonder at some of this as well. And we pray that you would give us understanding of mind. But more importantly, Father, I'm asking for faith of heart. I'm asking, Lord, that you will go directly to our hearts this morning and speak to us truth. Truth, Father, that could save some this morning from a lifetime of doubt and others can be rescued out of doubt and difficulty. And we know that this comes by the name of the most precious Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So is it any wonder that the enemy of God would try to get belief in the creation story stricken from humanity? Because this very story tells us where our identity began, where it comes from. But our world is suffering from an identity crisis. It happens when you don't know where you've come from. When you don't know where you're going. When you don't know what you're here for, you suffer from identity crisis. And people of all walks of life and all ages are struggling with this very thing right now in this culture and around the world. They're struggling to know who they really are and what they're meant to be. Another term we could apply to this Arrested development. Not the series. The word, the phrase, arrested development. We live in a world that has experienced arrested development, has gone only so far and stopped, and is blocked from maturity. Arrested development is when maturity is stunted, growth is blocked, and so immaturity becomes the norm. We're called in the Bible to grow up. Ephesians chapter 4 says, into all things in Christ Jesus. To become a mature man in Christ. Not to arrest that development. Teenagers. Teenagers listen up especially. All week long while I thought about these things, I thought of our teens. Because if you understand, if you can grasp what we're going to talk about this morning, you will save yourself from a lifetime of identity crises. If you can grab this and hold on to it, You're going to know today before you walk out of the barn, not only who you are, but what you're meant to be. And the problem is that adults don't understand that often. Midlife crisis, gang, is the result of not knowing who you are. And adults struggling with that. I I shared first hour, and I may have told you all this before, but when I was in youth ministry years ago, I remember walking into the office of our our main secretary at Knott Avenue Christian Church. Her name was Sharon, and and I said, Sharon, I just, I am, sometimes I get so exasperated with our teenagers. They're so tough to work with. And she just smiled and said, wait till you work with adults. (laughs) 
And I walked out of there thinking, I'm never going to get out of youth ministry. So. But she was right. She was right. And you know who the number one example of that in my life is? Me! As an adult, realizing, wow, it's not what I thought it would be. And the crises come, and the crises go, and the identity, and the questions, and who am I, what am I supposed to be about, and what am I doing? 2,700 years ago, when Isaiah came out prophesying the Word of God and the truth of God, Israel was suffering from identity crisis, from remembering and knowing who they truly were. I read a verse last week. Look at Isaiah 48, verse 1. We were in our midweek study and just going through, and this verse came out and, and hit me like a ton of bricks because I believe it could speak to Israel both then and now, and it can speak to the church of today. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. Praying to God, but but not in truth, not honestly, not righteously. And what that means is to swear by the name of the Lord, to invoke the name of the God of Israel, but not in truth, not in righteousness. It's a sham. And all kinds of prayer like that goes up all the time. Sham prayers, phony prayers, that not only lack integrity, because those praying aren't even believing in the one to whom they're praying, but it also lacks identity. To actually come before the Lord and, and pray. And people do this in crisis. Things go wrong in life. And it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's George Bailey. I know I reference that movie a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> but it's George Bailey saying, Lord, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there, I could use some help. It's a sham. To approach Jesus without knowing who Jesus is. And it lacks identity. And there is a key to knowing our true identity, to having an absolute confidence in who we are, what we were meant to be, where we've come from, and where we're going. Let me give you three examples of this before we get back to Isaiah 49. Three examples of of people who were not in identity crisis. They knew who they were. The first one is a man named Seth. Seth. You may remember the name Seth. He's the third born on planet Earth. His name means appointed. And along comes Seth. But can you imagine being being raised by the first two parents in history. Talk about not having a clue. Okay, I feel clueless enough, but we've got all the books, and we've got the history and the people, and we can say, okay, that's not a good way to do it, and here's maybe a better way to do it. Adam and Eve, these were the two who violated the only law on the books and were kicked out of the garden. They lost the farm, and this was before they decided to have kids. Booted out of the garden, shown their sinful nature, they said, now let's try having children. (laughs) And so they had Cain. And do you know that Eve, I fully believe this, if you go back and read the language here, Eve, when she gave birth to Cain, thought that he was the Messiah. She was there as, as the Lord was bringing forth the curses, and the curse for Eve, and the curse for Adam because of their sin, and the curse on the serpent. And she heard what the Lord said. You shall bruise, he shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise him on the head. And then she gives birth to this son, this child, this Cain. And she says, I have gotten a child, the Lord. I see our Bibles translate, I have gotten a child by the Lord. But the Hebrew language is very plain. I have gotten a child, the Lord. Adam, it's the Lord. And how many of you moms thought that when you had your firstborn? (laughs) The perfect child, you know. Until the first diaper changed, it was downhill from there. (laughs) I've gotten a child, the Lord, she said. Well, that didn't work out so well. The first two boys were a tragic tale. First murderer and first victim. So Adam and Eve lose Cain because now he's exiled. They lose Abel because he's in the ground. And they try again. And Adam had relations, Genesis 4.25, with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth, appointed one. God's done this. This is what God does. You know, when we mess it up, He reboots the system. (laughs) Brings along Seth. And in spite of the identity crises of Seth's parents and his family, somehow this young man came to understand and accept his own name. Came to believe that he was appointed, that he was an appointed one. Well, well, where do you see that? 
Seth gang, I believe, influenced a generation at least to know their identity in the name of God. Genesis 4.26 tells us to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's interesting. Seth um, started to call upon the name of the Lord after his son was born. And we see that a lot too. People will give birth to a child and go, okay, time to get back to church now. Because <laughs> we don't know what to do with this little thing. And so Seth has Enosh, and we're told he began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that phrase in the Hebrew, to, be call, to call upon the name of the Lord, also translates to be called by the name of the Lord. Oh, you're God's people. Oh, you're one of the people of God. You're one of God's men, God's women. So Seth, first example of someone who knew his identity and where it came from. Second example, John. John the Apostle. In the Gospel of John, do you know he never names himself a single time? He never refers to himself as the Apostle. He never refers to himself as the friend of Jesus. John. never uses, The only time John uses the name John, he's referring to John the Baptist. But he does mention himself five times by a different designation. After the resurrection of Jesus, he goes with Peter. And they go back up with a few of the other apostles, Nathaniel and some others, back up to the Galilee, and they go out fishing. It's kind of Peter's way of thinking things through. You know, a lot of you guys understand that. I've got to go fish. I just can't, I can't deal with this. I'm going to get out on the boat. So Peter's out there, and James and John are with him, Nathaniel again, and some of the others. And they're fishing. They fish all night long. And they get nothing. Early morning dawns, and they look out, and there's a guy standing there on the shore. And the man calls out, Hey, did you catch anything? Nope, we've been fishing all night. Fish aren't biting today. Why don't you try throwing the net on the right side of the boat? Which, by the way, is not good fishing. You know, if you're not going to catch on the left side, (laughs) chances are it's not going to happen on the right either. (laughs) But this man says to do that, so they figure they will. They throw it over and they cannot even haul in the fish. And suddenly, John and James and Peter, they remember. Luke chapter 5 tells the exact same, same story at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. How they couldn't fat, catch fish all night long. And how suddenly this, Jesus says, Hey, let's go fishing. Throw the net over the side. They pull up and they cannot pull it in. So many fish. Suddenly they're right back at their calling when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. And the Bible tells us in John 21 verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. And then Forrest swam all the way to sea. Total Forrest Gump moment here. And I'm convinced, it's not in Scripture, but I'm convinced Peter got up on the shore, and as James and John came roaring in, he looked at Jesus and went, That's my boat. (laughs) That happens. But did you hear it? The only name John ever uses for himself in his gospel five times, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was John's identity. Teenagers, did you hear that? John's identity. The disciple whom Jesus loved. WWJD, that was cool for a while. How about DWJL? Okay? Make the shirt extra large, 100% cotton would be good. I'll, I'll wear that shirt. DWJL, the disciple whom Jesus loved, because John's entire identity was bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you heard that, teens. John's identity is bound up in who Jesus was, not in who he was. And it wasn't until John began to realize who Jesus was, and to walk with Jesus, and to experience something of Jesus' character, that suddenly John said, that's an identity worth having. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Third example. The early believers at Antioch. Some of you know this. Acts chapter 11 verse 26 says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And I point that out because if you want a model for church growth, there it is, Acts chapter 11, where they first began to be called Christians. Church growth experts could have saved themselves a lot of print if they just focused on this one principle to be called by the name of Jesus. How do you know it's a church growth strategy? Well, Acts chapter 11, verse 21 and verse 24 tell us large and considerable numbers of people were brought to the Lord at Antioch. 
Antioch, the church that was not afraid to stand up and say, we are Jesus' people. It's who we are. We're Christians. Call us that name. We're proud of it. We're not ashamed of it. We love the name. And they were first called Christians at Antioch. And gang, people are called to Jesus by those who do not suffer identity crisis, but those who know who they are in Jesus. And that is absolutely key. That's why we're reading the servant songs of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 49 now. That's why we're spending the time doing this. Five servant songs. We've already seen the first one, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 6. We're in the second one now, Isaiah 49. We're going to see several more. In fact, the intensity of these songs will increase dramatically over the next couple of weeks until we get into Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant in one of the most profound prophecies in the whole Bible. But here Jesus is being talked about. Jesus is focused on. And we're looking at these because if we can learn to define ourselves by the name of Christ, we will not suffer from identity crisis. We will not struggle with arrested development. We will continue to grow up in the way Jesus has called us. He said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life. Life overflowing. That's how you do it. In Jesus. You will not find the overflowing abundant life any other way. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And some might be sitting here this morning saying, yeah, but my reputation around here is too tainted. No one can clean that up. My sin background is too messed up. I'm too broken. I'm too far gone. Adults especially, listen. Jesus saves. And you are not beyond salvation. Nobody is beyond salvation. No, not one. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. But nobody is beyond the salvation which comes by the name of Jesus. With that in mind, let's look at this second servant song and just think this through with me. Verse 1, chapter 49. Listen to me, O islands. Pay attention, you peoples from afar. Who's he talking to here? Everyone. The first servant song, he's singing, talking about Jesus to Israel, talking about Messiah, to Israel's Messiah. Here, he's talking to everyone. And we've seen this phrase before, the islands, the people from afar, looking out to the islands. Imagine Jesus standing on the shores of the Mediterranean, the deep blue Mediterranean, looking out on the lost world out beyond the the land of Israel proper. That's who this song is being sung to pay attention. That's calling to you and calling to me. More on that in a little bit. The Lord called me from the womb. And from the body of my mother, He named me. Now we need to sit here for just a minute. No, it's not Christmas. That's okay. From the womb of my mother, He named me. Isaiah's already talked about this. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. And the critic immediately stands up and says two problems. Number one, the word virgin there can also mean maiden. And number two, He wasn't called Emmanuel. He's called Jesus. So what do you do with that? Well, First of all, the the word maiden, you Bible students know this, it's used 14 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. 13 out of the 14 times, the very context shows that the word means virgin. The 14th time is Isaiah 7.14, and it's the only place where it's contested, because for it to be true, there would have to be a virgin birth, and people cannot accept that. Besides the fact, when the New Testament refers back to the prophecy, the New Testament authors speaking in the Greek use the word in the Greek for virgin unquestionably. So the virgin will be with child. Furthermore, the Lord will give you a sign. And we all know a maiden can have a baby any day of the week, but a virgin, that's a sign. (laughs) That's huge. Emmanuel. Okay, but what about the fact that Jesus was called Jesus and He wasn't called Emmanuel? And when the angel came to Mary and to Joseph, He didn't say Emmanuel. He said Jesus. Name Him Jesus. So it breaks down. No, it doesn't. Emmanuel is the divine designation of the coming Messiah. Jesus is the human name. His, his human name. 
His basic plain human name. And that's so important to get. Let me read the old story to you. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and to the virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Can you imagine the conversation? between Mary and Joseph when she realized she was pregnant. Um, honey, I know we're betrothed, which in, you know, in Israel meant that they were basically married, but they hadn't consummated the marriage. Betrothal was far more significant than our engagement. So they were married, but the ceremony had to happen and then the consummation to be fully married. So they're betrothed. She comes up and she's supposed to be a virgin. She says, um, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. <laughs> I'm going to have a baby. It's not yours, obviously, but uh, this one is God's. Yeah, this is Holy Spirit. Took care of this, so um, just trust me on this. And we know Joseph didn't. We know Joseph went, yeah. And we're told that Joseph said, being a, a righteous and honorable man, he didn't want to hurt Mary. He obviously loved her. He said, I'm going to put her, put her away quietly, quietly divorce her, and just move on. Obviously heartbroken. And the Bible tells us in Luke one twenty six in the sixth or Matthew one twenty when he had considered this behold an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins by the way the name Jesus if you didn't know this. Every time you see the word salvation translated in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word is Yeshua. Jesus. Name this kid salvation, the angel told Joseph. Interesting, Mary saw the angel in person. Joseph only had a dream. Why? Because I believe the Lord was saying, Joseph, I'm going to give you a dream, but this is going to require a little faith on your part. You're going to have to trust that this dream was not just something that you concocted in your brain, but that really came from me. And Joseph, God bless him, believed and trusted and knew the Lord was in this. Now listen, because this is absolutely huge as applies to your salvation. The servant in Isaiah 49 had to be born of the womb of a woman. Why? So that he could be sympathetic. Five things to note in this song. Number one, the servant is sympathetic. He relates to man in a way only a man can relate to man. He understands man having become a man himself. I don't know about you, but when when people go to the polls in November, I think the primary thing most people will be asking is, who gets me among the candidates? Who understands where I'm at? And the only real answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus understands, He gets you, He's been there, He knows. And so I'm starting a Jesus Christ writing campaign for November. <laughs> right here this morning, just write in the name Jesus. And let's get Him elected, okay? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 says the following. Listen closely. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. And having been made perfect... He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. What do we do with that? I mean, isn't He already perfect? So how can He be made perfect? And wasn't He already God? And then how can He learn obedience? Understand this, it's so critical. As God, yes, He knew all things, He knows all things. But He had not yet experienced all things. The one thing God had never been was limited to human flesh. He had never lived in Himself in that way. Never before walked with the bare feet of a man. Never before felt the physical pangs of hunger. Oh, He would understand, you know, from a God perspective and from the Creator perspective, He, he, would, he would fully understand that. But from our perspective, we look and we would say, yeah, but... but Has he really ever tripped and stubbed his toe and felt that? (laughs) You know? Has he ever been hurt by somebody and and suffered from that? I mean, you know, he's God and we're man and the distance is so great. And God says, yeah, that's why my servant will be born of the womb. And this blows my mind. Jesus came 
and learned as a human being what it meant to be a human being and how a human being would be perfected in obedience to God. Do you understand? I'm not saying Jesus was ever not God. I'm saying that when He became human, He set aside, well, Paul said He emptied Himself, Philippians 2.7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Good news. Having learned that, He is back in the seat of power with the sympathy, the understanding, the empathy of one who has walked as a man. So the same power that saves you, my friends, sympathizes with you. The same power that has got you eternally gets you right now. Knows what you're dealing with. Has felt every single thing you have ever felt. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Big pastoral problem in the world. People looking at pastors and thinking that they're a step ahead or above. No, as human as anybody else, struggling like anybody else, like I told you earlier, I walked into the barn burdened this morning. Sorrowful. My heart aching for some situations going on that I can't do anything about. How much more, when we look at God, do we say, yeah, but you know, He's up there on that throne. And, and so Jesus says, no, no, I get you. Paul says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, and this may rattle a few of you, but we have a human being representing us in heaven right now. A human being who is God. (laughs) But that's so critical. John even says in, in 1 John, he says you've got to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That he, he resurrected in the flesh. It wasn't some vague spiritual esoteric resurrection. This flimsy little spirit came out. No, Jesus showed up. He had the scars to prove it. He ate fish with the apostles. He hung out with them. He revealed his humanity, his, his in the fleshness. And he is still, he is still in the flesh. In the same way you will be, in the same way I will be, in the day when our bodies are glorified. As Paul talks about, another sermon for another time. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 The servant born of the womb of woman is sympathetic. And that means you, you, know, you won't experience anything, or, or everything, you won't experience everything that Jesus went through. But he has experienced everything that you've gone through. I want you to think, just for a moment, about your most painful moment in life. Guess what? Jesus felt it. The worst sin that you have ever committed, Jesus felt the shame of that sin. The worst pain that you've ever felt, He felt. Because when Jesus went to the cross, He took the whole of our sin and and shame and sorrow on His back. He felt it. Don't ever tell me, Jesus just doesn't understand me. Wrong. Nobody understands you like Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. We have a sympathetic Savior in Jesus. Continuing on in verse 10. That's just the first half of the first verse. He says, He made me, well, that's the second verse, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Second thing to note, the servant is not only sympathetic, the, sh- the servant is a sharp sword. The servant is a sharp... That's hard to say. Try saying that three times fast. The servant is a sharp sword. (laughs) No, don't try. You Bible students know that the sword in Scripture is the Word of God. The Bible talks about this often. Hebrews 4.12 The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You cannot get away from Him. He sees. He is fully aware. And His Word is sharp and incisive. Nothing can cut to the heart like God's Word. His written Word that we're studying right now. 
pierces the heart. The spoken Word of God. As we learn to understand Him and listen to Him. And the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, John said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And you know where this goes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when John saw Jesus in the Revelation, he wrote, Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in its strength. Listen, fellow sinner. No one else can make the spiritual incisions with such perfect surgical precision as Jesus can. As Jesus does. He is able not only to cut out the flesh-eating bacteria of sin. And I choose that specifically. Several years ago, uh, several of you know Jesse, a young man named Jesse, who, who got a flesh-eating bacteria and was in the hospital. And this flesh-eating bacteria literally, I mean, it's just one of the most vile things in the world. And they literally had to open up Jesse's throat and chest and dig out and surgically remove the bacteria and then they had to leave it open to try and heal. And then the bacteria would start to come back again. And they had to dig and clean and, and try to heal. And it was so difficult. And Jesse to this day would have scars from that. And yet, Jesus comes along. And He removes perfectly the flesh-eating bacteria of sin that doesn't stop until Jesus gets a hold of it. And He does so, listen, He does so with incisions that will heal perfectly. That Jesus, when He heals somebody, doesn't just kind of throw them back together and they go limping down the road, I'm healed! (laughs) I'm better! No! (laughs) He heals perfectly, beautifully, no scars, no scabs, no defects of any kind, a perfect spirit before the Lord. That's how Jesus heals. So incisive is His Word that as the flesh of the heart comes back together, there's no sign that there was ever any cutting at all. Amazing how the Word works. His salvation is about absolute healing. You know, I will always bear the scars of my birth defect on my lip. It will always be there until the day I go home or the day I die, in which case it won't be there any longer when I have my glorified lip. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. But I do not, don't miss this, I do not and never again will bear the scars of my sin. They're gone. I am healed completely. Jesus, on the other hand, does forever bear those scars. Now that's shocking. This one who is God in the flesh, this one who is our human being, representative in heaven, if you were to stand before Him right now, today, in this moment, guess what you would see? Scars on His hands, on His waist. John said in the Revelation, when he saw Him, he looked as a lamb that had been slain. Visible scars. After His resurrection, when He appeared to the apostles every time, He said, look at the scars. See my hands? See the holes? Jesus bears those scars so that He can remove yours and mine. And He does so completely. But listen, this sword, this incisive sword, which is perfect for healing, is also perfect in judgment. Revelation 19.15 said, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, referencing Psalm 2 and Isaiah 2. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The sword of surgical salvation is also the sword of certain wrath. Identity crisis, which one do I get? It's up to you. It's your call. God has placed that into your hands. Romans 10.13, quoting Joel 2.32, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that saving is surgical, precise, and eternal in Jesus Christ. Continuing on in verse 2. In the shadow of His hand He has concealed me. He has also made me a select or sharp arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. The, The servant now, number three, the servant was a secret arrow. Sympathetic, a sharp sword, and now he is the secret arrow. 
Israel's Messiah gang was an intentional mystery for a long, long time. God intentionally said, I'm not going to fully make this recognizable. Remember we read last week, Peter wrote about the prophets saying, they searched and made careful inquiries to try and figure out at what time the Spirit of Christ within them was was saying that this was going to happen. And if we sat down back then, prior to the coming of Jesus, and took every Hebrew prophecy and laid it all out before us, and tried to make it work, it would be like, <laughs> be like some of the scientists trying to put together dinosaur bones. I am sure that we've got many of those wrong. Okay, that the bones put together are completely, you know... Anyway, trying to put together these prophecies and go, well, this says that he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. This over here says he's going to come riding into Jerusalem glorious on a donkey, triumphant. How's that work? This says he's going to die and be buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. But this says he's going to be a glorious and reigning king. How does that work? God began bringing all these prophecies one after the other, laying them out, but He didn't put them together until Jesus came. And when Jesus came into the world, all of a sudden it all started to make sense as people saw it happening to Him. And every prophecy of the first coming of Christ has been fulfilled perfectly by Jesus. I could go off on that. I'm not going to this morning. But Paul calls this whole thing the mysterion. The mysterion. Ephesians 1.9, he, he has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, which is, as we read last week, the summing up of all things in Christ, in Messiah. Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, even among the Gentiles, which is, listen, here's your identity, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why did God do it? Why did He keep His servant a mystery? Because, listen, the secret arrow was not sent to satisfy the mind, but to pierce the heart. Jesus came to pierce the heart of man. At the birth of Jesus, Luke tells us, Luke chapter 2, and you can just listen, I'll read this to you. Luke chapter 2, verse 26. No, turn there. Go ahead and turn there. You need to see this. Luke 2, 26. This arrow that pierces the heart. On Wednesday night we were talking about a Jewish man named Shimon. Your Bible says Simeon, that's the Greek transliteration of the name, but it's Shimon. And Shimon was there at the temple, and Shimon was among those around the time of the birth of Jesus who was looking for the consolation of Israel. Who had read the prophet, obviously he had read Isaiah, because he quotes him here in just a second. And so he knew that God had promised something was going to happen. One was going to come. A Messiah would arrive. The consolation, the comfort of Israel was coming. And so Shimon was watching for this. Watch what happens. It had been revealed to him, verse 26, Luke chapter 2, by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Then he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law... Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your... Say it out. Your salvation. Listen, Shimon would have been speaking Hebrew. He would have said, My eyes have seen your Yeshua. Which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then he quotes Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And then it says, Joseph and Mary, his his father and mother, were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And he says, watch this, a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. God fires His secret arrow, Messiah, Christ Jesus. He fires this arrow into the heart. And what happens when the heart is pierced? Faith pours out like blood. 
Faith emerges from the heart, not from the head. Faith never comes from enough knowledge. Okay, I've got the facts down. I'm reading through this and it looks pretty good. Okay, I'll believe. That's not how it works. And you believers know this. You made a decision. You got to a point where your heart was wrenched, where your heart was pierced by the truth of who Jesus is. And in that moment, faith came out. And so this secret arrow would wait until the proper time and faith would arrive. Listen to this. When Peter stood up at Pentecost, he preached Jesus to all the Jews gathered there for Shavuot, the Jewish festival, Pentecost. And we're told in Acts 2.37, when they heard, they were pierced to the heart. What pierced the heart? Jesus. The secret arrow. The Messiah. Peter preached Jesus. That's all he did. He talked about Jesus again and again, and it got in. It pierced the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Theology, apologetics, proofs and evidences, these are all good things, but the secret arrow that pierces the heart of man and woman is Jesus, which is why we talk about Him. It's why we preach Jesus in this fellowship. It's why when we open the Bible, we're assuming Jesus is going to be present because He's the secret arrow that is no longer secret, but now revealed and pierces into the heart. And if you're thinking, i got friends and I'm trying to bring them to church, would you do me a favor and stop trying to bring them to church? And instead, start talking to them about Jesus. Let church be something that happens, you know. Tell them about Jesus, because only Jesus will change a heart. Don't, don't try to come up with all kinds of proof and evidence and all those things. Unless they're asking, then answer the questions, obviously. But talk about Jesus. What does He mean to you? What has He done to you? How has He pierced your heart? That will change a life. Verse 3. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Whoops. Um, says the servant here that he's talking about is Israel. Mommy, was Pastor Rick wrong? Okay, look down at verse 5. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. I just got to ask a question. How does Jacob bring Jacob back to God? How does Israel lead Israel or gather Israel to God? We're not talking about Israel and the collective in this song. We are talking about Israel as an individual. The singular servant of the Lord. The one I called a couple of weeks back the perfect Jew. Jesus Christ. Why would God say, you are Israel, to Jesus? Well, same reason kind of. Weak example, but I'll give it anyway. Louis XIV stood up once and said, France must rule the world, and I am France. No, you're not, Louis. You may have the robes and the crown and all that. You are not France. No, but he represented France, right? The representative of France. That's That's the stance he was taking. Well, Jesus is the perfect representative of Israel. He is the ultimate Jew. The perfect Jew. He, he, he is everything that God called the Jewish people to become. Israel's truest identity is Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about King Louis' royal arrogance. The Lord God says of His servants, you are Israel. And Israel means, Bible students, Israel means Prince of God. Yisrael, Prince of God. Jesus is that Prince. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince, Isaiah called Him the Prince of Peace. The Prince revealed. Now, some Jews today, I know, and it's alright, some would no doubt be offended by me saying Jesus is the perfect Jew. Jesus is the ultimate Jew. And I don't say it to be offensive. But the Hebrew prophets themselves declared that the Jewish people would recognize this one day. Daniel, in talking about Messiah, Daniel 9.24 and 9.26, calls Messiah the Prince. You are the Prince. The Prince? Israel. Prince of God. 
And further down, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 tells us, the day is coming, gang, where God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What's a firstborn in Jewish culture? The heir. The prince. The heir apparent. And the day is coming when Israel will look up and they will see Jesus and say, the firstborn. That Jesus in Himself fulfilled everything that God called Israel to be. He is the perfect Jew and that's why He says, you are my servant, Israel. By the way, there are plenty of Gentiles today who would be offended by me saying that our truest identity is in Jesus Christ. People who would say, my identity is in my education and my intelligence and my intellect. My identity is in science. Well, you can choose that identity, but you're going to be in crisis. My identity is only in the name of Jesus. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. Verse 4. Verse 4 is, is very touching. Because verse 4, we hear the humanity of Jesus crying out, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. In the midst of this song, we hear the servant in a very tender and human way speak of his disappointment and his discouragement. Well, wait a minute. Jesus was discouraged? Absolutely He was. Jesus was bummed out? Isaiah in Isaiah 53 called Him a man of sorrows. Crying out to the Lord. You know, in all those nights that He spent praying to His Father, you had to know many of them were in tears. And the tears that He prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane, as His sweat became like droplets of blood, were tears for you and me. Tears in the realization that there was only one way for these foolish people to be saved. Jesus knew disappointment, knew sorrow, knew discouragement. Again, teenagers, dial back in if you've been napping. Jesus knew what it meant to be discouraged. Jesus knew heartache. He knew how it felt to be bummed out. He knew exactly how that felt. And I'll tell you, there are two reasons He did. Number one, because He knew the obliviousness of the world. They had not a clue who He was or why He was here. And he also knew the rejection of his own people. John tells us in John 1 verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Moms and dads, can you imagine raising a child? They get up to the age of 21 and they say, I don't know you anymore and walk out. And that's it. Well, that's how Jesus felt. But he came to his own, John said. And those who were his own did not receive him. Even his own Jewish people said, no, no, you can't be him. You're not the Messiah. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now listen, because this is the whole thing right here. This is it. The servant of the Lord, sympathetic, sharp as a sword, a secret arrow, and the very self of Israel. That, by the way, was number four. He is the self of Israel. But He's bigger. He's greater than all of this. Look at verse 6. He says, God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Now I'll tell you something. The salvation of the Jewish people to me is huge. I mean, that's massive. That's remarkable. It's wonderful that God would choose a people, love them, and promise ultimately to save them, which He will. But God here says... We can do that, and we're going to do that, but it's too small a thing. My plans are bigger. And he goes on to say, I will also make you, this servant of Israel, a light of the nations, so that my salvation, my Yeshua, may reach to the ends of the earth. Absolute and total salvation offered to every person, past, present, future, who has ever lived, has that same opportunity to find salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. The servant, number five, gang, is salvation. Jesus is It's not just that Jesus saves, it's that Jesus is salvation in and of Himself. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to end there this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. 
For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. There's your identity. Every single person born into the world, that's your identity. That's where you came from. It's who you are. It's where you're going. That's why God wants you to know Jesus. Because our identity, our self, is totally wrapped up in Him. And if we don't get that, we miss the boat. But if we understand that, the crisis doesn't come. And we walk as saved people. Verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Paul was a Jew, so he's speaking as a Jewish man, he says, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are also called the uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Identity crisis. You were a nobody. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who formerly were far off have been brought near by your good works and your righteousness and your cleanness, and because you. No, by the blood of Christ. Not by anything you've done. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, Paul says, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What wall? The wall between Jew and Gentile. Jew, the chosen people, the people called by God. Gentile, the rest. (laughs) And God broke down the dividing wall and said, now Jew and Gentile will be mine. Galatians 3.28 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. He broke down that wall, verse 15, by abolishing Jesus in His flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who are far away, you distant islands, Fidalgo, Whidbey. For through Him, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Jesus did what Israel could not do by keeping the law and what you cannot do by being a good guy or a good lady. All of us who strain at good deeds are religion. God sent His servant, Jesus the Mashiach, to save. The Christ of God. Jesus who saves. Teenagers, I hope you get this. Jesus is the salvation of the world and only in Him will you be saved from yourself. Outside of Him, you will suffer and struggle with yourself your whole life. But in Jesus, you are saved. Adults, I'll say it again. There's not a person in this barn this morning that is beyond salvation. His grace is too big. Jesus saves. What a great word. What a wonderful promise. Seth fathered a generation who are called by the name of God. John defined himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the believers at Antioch, they were the first to be called Christians. And that's my identity. And it's yours if you call on Jesus today.